Broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in Phoenix, Arizona. It's time for Valley Business Radio, spotlighting the Valley's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre, and I'm joined in the studio today, our virtual studio, by my co-host for this series on women in the mining industry. Jennifer Burge is CEO of Worldwise Coaching and Training. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I am fabulous, Adrian. How are you today? I'm great. Welcome back. I am excited to have the third and final segment of this mini-series on mega women in the mega region. What Lies Beneath. We're talking about women in the mining industry in Arizona and Sonora and beyond. And you've lined up a very interesting series of guests to share their experience and their expertise in this topic. Before we meet today's panelists, let's talk a little bit about the series itself. If folks are just joining us now and they haven't heard the previous two episodes, what's going on here? Why is this important? And what's your intention for this miniseries? Well, first of all, Adrian, thank you very much for giving us this opportunity to delve into the issues that women in mining face. And why is it that women have had such obstacles to success in the mining industry in Arizona and Sonora? Myself and 24 other women put on a program funded by the U.S. State Department for women's empowerment in mining in the mega region, Arizona, Sonora, uh, starting at International Women's Day, March of uh, this year. And it became very apparent how much interest there was in the topic. And because we had such a large agenda, uh, we didn't have time to go deeper into the issues. So when you mentioned that uh, these are the stories that traditional media tends to ignore, I wanted to bring people to the table who refuse to be ignored. <laughs> very good. Very good. And certainly I know one of our guests personally is a woman who refuses to be ignored and that makes her wonderful. Melissa Sanderson, Mel, to everyone who knows her well, is president of Mel Sanderson Consulting. And when you, Mel, joined us previously on Valley Business Radio, you've actually been on the show twice in a previous capacity. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you today. I'll have you uh, say a little bit about yourself and your work in just a second. Nancy Morales Arango is business development manager for Mexico for Bureau Veritas. Nancy, tell us a little bit about the company, about the work it does, uh, and give us a sense of how you fit into this landscape. Well, first and foremost, thanks, Adrian, for having me and also Jennifer. And love the fact that Mel is also an on this discussion, look forward to just chatting it up. So Bureau Veritas is the world leader in testing, inspection, and certification service, TIC, since 1828. Our uh, headquarters are in Paris. Uh, I do business development for uh, our minerals division in Mexico. Verification. I'm an outsider to this industry. So tell me what that means. I can tell you a little bit about what our division does. What we do, we analyze the core that is being drilled from the ground from the exploration companies. And we we verify and we analyze the core and we tell them how much minerals are in that particular sample. Our footprint is uh, for our division. It starts from Canada to the U.S., Mexico. We give the companies 100% security that uh, what is being um, analyzed and what is being certified is correct. 
So an independent third party kind of seal of approval that this is in fact what we say it is and not just a bunch of rocks. That is correct. Okay, that's the that's how I would think about it in my fourth grade mind. Mel Sanderson, tell us a little bit about your work, uh, about your history. You certainly have had a, a a varied career that has led you to this point. What's going on with Mel Sanderson Consulting and how did you get there? <laughs> oh, the long and winding road story, um, which began uh, way back in Cincinnati, Ohio, when I joined the uh, U.S. Diplomatic Service and went off to see the world and serve my country. After myriad adventures, I found myself in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. After, I might add, vigorously resisting going near Africa for the rest of my entire career for the very specific reason that I have strong opinions, a big mouth, and an anti-colonial attitude. So I was pretty convinced that Africa was the wrong continent for me. But after much cajoling on the part of the Department of State, I wound up in the DRC Fell in love with that crazy country, had the privilege of being inducted into different tribal families and really have adopted DRC as, as my second country. So I was so much in love with it that I didn't want to leave it. And along came an opportunity in the mining sector. And I might add that um, being a tree-hugging bunny kisser means that I brought in a lot of antipathy towards the mere concept of working for a mining company. But did my research and weighed my options and decided that it was the right kind of company at the right time for the DRC. It, there really was a chance to make a paradigm change in the way mining is done in that country. Parentheses. Unfortunately, it turned out one company wasn't good enough. So I went over to Freeport McMoran as vice president for Africa. And after eight years in Congo, came back here to Phoenix. And uh, just last year, took the opportunity to retire and chase my own personal passions via Mel Sanderson Consulting. So my passion is putting people at the heart of mining. And the way in which I would like to realize that passion and transform the industry is through um, my trademarked idea of ethical, sustainable growth plus. Because the whole world is talking ESG, which is, of course, you know, environmental, social, and governance. And I want to go step beyond that, change the foundational thinking, and bring the industry into, again, a whole new paradigm. And just as one company failed to do so in a country, perhaps I as one woman will fail to do so in a global industry. But by golly, that's my crusade. I mean, if we're going to use our one precious life in service of a big vision, it comes with the understanding, I think, that we're one piece in a larger puzzle and we're going to do our part and, and make it work. Uh, I'm going to take somewhat of a sidecar seat in this conversation um, and I'll have Jennifer introduce herself in a second for those who haven't uh, followed the trajectory of this series. But I want to say when you spoke about resisting Africa, uh, two things came to mind, having spent some time in, in various African countries myself. One is that in my primary career prior to this one was in the Middle East. And I you know, have worked and lived in over 30 countries. And the funny thing is, if I go back to the early days when I was first applying for graduate programs and beginning to really commit to a research path in the region, as I studied 
the landscape and was looking for the right combination of university resources and and academic advisors who would guide my career. The one thing I knew for sure was that I had no interest in Iraq and I had no interest in the Sudan. I had read books on both these places. They both seemed relatively horrible places to live and work, either because of an oppressive regime or because of a, a terrible civil war, et cetera, et cetera. Ironically, now fast forward, you know, 16 years after that period of my life, those are the two countries I spent the most time in and fell in love with the most. Uh, and while I have lived in many places, Iraq and Sudan are the two places I ended up uh, being most closely connected to. So it is funny how these kinds of things play out. Um, Jennifer, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview on your uh, trajectory as well? Because I think this creates... These three narratives we're hearing here kind of create the fabric for the conversation that's going to unfold, which is you all have, we all have, but you in particular, you have unique experiences and they're somewhat unconventional. You didn't get to this place by following a typical path. And Jennifer, I know your own story uh, reflects that. Can you share a little bit with us of how you got to the place where you now run worldwide coaching and training here in Phoenix? Long and winding path indeed, right, Mel? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny that we're on the topic of resisting particular countries uh, because I returned back to the United States three years ago after 17 years across Europe, Asia, and Australia. And the United States was the last place I wanted to come back to. I had zero intention of doing so, um, but because of some personal circumstances, this is where it needed to be. Um, I found myself grateful to be next to Mexico so that I could start investigating yet another new culture and working there. The trajectory, goodness, I knew from the time that, uh, yeah, I'm going back to like the olden days, as Mel was talking about, in Vermilion, Ohio, which is a bit west of Cleveland, going back to the olden days, I I was fortunate to to have a lot of experiences in other cultures when I was very young. I began studying languages when I was in the sixth grade. And I always knew that I wanted to get to work overseas. And in Europe was in particular on my mind. And um, I knew I wanted to find somebody to pay for that experience in Europe. So there was a little bit back and forth involved with how I ultimately got there, but it's quite timely that we're talking about it this week because the opportunity to go to Germany of all places, which I did not speak German, I spoke software. Um, I was working in the IT industry as a management consultant during that time. And I had some knowledge about CRM software that was important to a large soft German software uh, company. And three days after September 11th, 2001, after we were all completely freaked out and I was forced out of to walk down 19 or run down 19 floors of a building in downtown Cleveland on September 11th, I was offered the opportunity to go to Germany. And of course, that came as a major decision point, right? It's, it's terrifying to leave the country, but what if no one ever asks me to go again? <laughs> so... Um, I really didn't hesitate too long before saying yes. And then I, I thought, well, this is a one-year assignment in Germany and I will take it as far as I can, see as much as I can, do as much as I can. And I came back 17 years later. But during those years, uh, as I mentioned on the last show, the barometer for the treatment of women in various places in the world is dramatically different. And after 
struggling with this myself and facing a lot of challenges, I decided it was my mission to help women who want to have this experience, this international experience, understand what it is that they're getting into. And that led to Mega Women as uh, this very local border that we have and all of these amazing women who have done similar things. And the three of us sitting here today, four of us sitting here today, that all of us have this international mindset, multicultural mindset, I don't think is a coincidence. (laughs) No, definitely not. And Nancy, you told us just a little bit about Bureau Veritas. You didn't tell us much about your own personal trajectory and and both Mel and Jennifer have done that. So what's the thumbnail sketch of how you got to where you are now? Did you start out in mining or did you come from a different industry as well? No, no. So uh, let let me share with you guys a little bit. So I I, I always tell myself I, I inherited being born Mexican American. Um, I was born and raised in Orange County, California, uh, by immigrant parents. Uh, I am the oldest of three children and I was raised by my parents always telling me that I could be and do whatever I wanted to be. So, uh, I played baseball. Uh, I was always involved in after school programs. Uh, I was the first Mexican American to be like student body president at my high school. Um, I started the national organization that arose from the Chicano, Chicano movement in the 60s, which is called MECHA, which stands for Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex de Aztlan. So I was the first of a lot of things <laughs> since a young age. And um, that was not about to change uh, into my adulthood. So um, long story short, uh, with work, uh, I ended up... Uh, getting involved in, in, in the mining industry after being involved for nine years in the tech industry. Well, I grew up in Riverside, California. There we go. <laughs> I know, right? And I kind of wish you had gone to my high school because, well, we had 40% or more of uh, Hispanic population. We had no Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex political action at my school. And I would have really appreciated that at the time. Um, all right, let's, setting all that wonderful stuff aside here for a second, the, the core of this conversation, and I want to say this thing and then get out of the way, because this isn't about me. That's explicitly the purpose of this series. It's not about me. It's not about us. But we have to, in some way, give an on-ramp to this conversation about women in mining, which means at some level, we have to talk about men in mining, because like many industries, this is Uh, widely viewed and I think probably accurately as a heavily male dominated sector, uh, a place where it is difficult for women to flourish in various careers. Uh, And if there's complications that would make those stereotypes less rigid, I'd love to hear about them on the show. But we we need to create an, an opening for a conversation about women's leadership, women's experience, uh, women's work, and so on. And I'll just say this one thing that I was thinking the other day and then and then move aside. I was thinking about how ridiculous patriarchy actually is, like how dumb it is, because if you think about it, the social science data is absolutely clear in companies led by women. Profits are higher. People are happier. And the thing generally works better in matriarchal societies where the governance structures, uh, which is more typical in what are sometimes called traditional side societies, native societies and so on. There's a totally different relationship 
to um, to society. Uh, there's an absence of of warfare. There's you know all these kind of things, and it just seems to me that if we were to actually look at this objectively, and I'm just going out on a limb here. I don't have kind of the evidence for this all lined up in a statistical numerical way, but it seems like we have somehow tricked ourselves into thinking this is better when in fact, it, there's no actual benefit. Like I can't think of any specific example where women being fully empowered to be themselves, to, to lead, to follow, to do whatever they wanted to do unhindered by male domination wouldn't be a better situation. So I'm putting all my cards out on the table here as, as you know, someone who tries to put the men in feminism and say, we got to talk about this because just because it's been done this way, because people did it this way, because people did it this way, doesn't mean it's right. We may actually be cutting off our nose despite our face, collectively speaking. So having said that, let me now allow Jennifer to step in and kind of guide us through this conversation because I know you guys have so much you want to get out here and let's, let's have you do that. Well, I don't know, Adrian. I think you just said it all right there. It's stupid. <laughs> the patriarchy <laughs> is, uh, it's an antiquated example that uh, isn't, it isn't conducive for the future and the growth of the global economy, let alone the mining economy worldwide. So there are things, obviously, we know ha- that need to change. And the people sitting in this particular virtual studio at this moment, um, Everyone here recognizes the need for that change. And we've been having a lot of conversations about what's going to drive that change and what's the most successful, what are the most successful strategies for how we can, forcing change is not really the way to put it, but how we can begin to make incremental change that will lead to greater change. Because as Mel and Nancy and I were discussing last Friday, these um, traditional male hierarchies that exist within the mining industry, you can put a diversity and inclusion training program into any one of them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that behavior will change. And most likely it won't. Um, I know that uh, Mel in particular has mentioned, and, and I feel the same, that um, none of this is possible without the collaboration of men without the support of men. And Mel, you had some examples about being invited to the dance or not being invited to the dance and some of the people who have helped you in your past. So I wonder if you'd like to share a little bit more about that. Sure, I'll I'll be glad to jump in there. And that's a great starting point because it really follows up nicely on what Adrian was saying as well, because we have, and not just our culture, but most cultures around the world, we have these cultural shackles, right, that we carry around with us. And they lead to male-dominated institutions and businesses. But I have to say that from the very get-go, women as mothers are also helping to perpetuate the stereotype of separation. The stereotype that, for instance, um, teenage girls should get together and and talk about boyfriends and and um, dresses and the prom, but boys should you know go out and play sports and then go out and get drunk afterwards and talk about their conquests. Um, and that we shouldn't be sitting around talking to each other about these sorts of things just within our gender. So that's how deep, in my view the problem runs. 
because it has its roots in parenting, in growing up. And while individual parents are exceptional, as I was really pleased with your story, Nancy, about you know your parents telling you from day one that you could be anything you want to be. Because I have some Mexican-American girlfriends who had completely an opposite experience with parents basically saying, look, you're a girl, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that, and you're going to grow up and be a nice mother. And, you know, you were, you had parents that helped you to find a different life. And that, again, illustrates that it starts from the bottom and goes up and becomes a system. So moving beyond the systemic point, I will say that in both of my careers, actually all three, because I started in investment banking, um, without exception, my mentors were all men, which has always proven to me that just as individual parents make such a difference, so too do individual men, because they don't have to buy into the system, but they don't have to overtly fight it either. They can raise women up within those systems and partner with them and ally with them. And that does lead to incremental change and it's very important. And kudos to every man who has ever mentored a woman. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to every man who mentored me and made me the person I am. But again, here's the problem. You get these these large companies in the mining industry and we're going back to my sports analogy. A lot of them have functions, you know, like an annual golf tournament. Freeport, for instance, has an annual golf tournament. And I had a girlfriend, also an, an executive in the company. And she was personally quite irked that, you know, she'd never been even asked. It was clear that there, there wasn't even any realization that, oh, she might actually like to come and take part in the golf tournament. It was just like, no, this is what we guys do. So she thought to herself, okay, maybe the problem, and this is so female, every, every woman on this call is going to recognize this thinking. Maybe it's my fault because after all, I don't know how to play golf. So why would they even ask me? So I'm going to make sure that I can be asked. And she went out and she paid for golf lessons. And I had said to her from day one, if you want to learn to play golf because you want to learn to play golf, this is a great idea. If you are learning to play golf because you think that's somehow going to get them to invite you to the tournament, I got my doubts. So she went out. She became quite a passable golf player. She made it widely known that she was a passable golf player, and she waited for the invitation. It didn't come. So she went to her boss, and she said, I would like to take part in the annual golf tournament. And he never said no but she also was never invited. So it's sort of the flip side, right? You get men who who want to mentor, who want to extend that hand, but some things, it's like the clubhouse, right? The door isn't open. It's seen as that divide between professional and personal. And even men who are interested in mentoring women in the industry professionally are often loath to try to open those doors into the informal networking opportunities that matter so much in every business structure. 
the sacred doors are still closed. The cave, they're still, the man caves <laughs> still exist and we are not uh, offered entry into those environments often. I agree with you. I remember when I was living in Brisbane and downtown's the capital of Queensland, Australia, seeing this, um, it's like a gathering place or a convention center or whatever, but it was said such and such men's club. I mean, like no women allowed. This was four years ago. Okay. <laughs> really you can still put that on a sign all righty um but I, I appreciate what you say very much mel because i too have had some great guys along the way um, the biggest opportunities i've been given have been given to me by men uh the best support in terms of operating um, in business cultures have come has come often from uh, men there is that last bastion that is unwilling to change, unwilling to allow us to be more than a, um, a statistic in the recent training program that they have delivered for how to be inclusive. Nancy, I would like to turn this over to you. As I've seen, we've known each other now for the better part of the year. Uh, we were introduced during the Mega Women program. I know a, a lot about you, all of your efforts having lived in Mexico for the past, more than the past decade. And you have this incredible history uh, in your family. And I, you also are a woman who, as I see it, embodies some very traditional female leadership traits in terms of practicing inclusivity, uh, wanting to have a win-win approach with other people, um, using the, another thing that women tend to do is using the attention that we gain as being the first woman in the room, the only woman in the room. We use that media attention or, or what have you to, to garner more support, not necessarily to glorify ourselves, but to boost up all women. And I know this of you. So talk to us about what you think about the, the inherent leadership skills of women and how we need to be ourselves in this male dominated culture. And you can talk about that Mexico or yeah. corporate-wise. <laughs> or both. Yeah. Well, one thing that I have understood is that authenticity is, is my most precious self-confidence tool. And it has been my power for me to deal with the cultural and industrial stigma. Um, this has given me a sense of being comfortable in my own shoes. Um, you know, I'm charismatic. I'm assertive. I'm competitive. Um, so one of the things that I did, um, is join, joining, you know, um, associations. I, I joined SME society for mining metallurgy and exploration. It's a U.S. based um, mining society. Um, the mindset of success, I think, um, that you foster within women around you, um, also pioneers in having a positive mindset and determination and, and women that have paid the way for us, um, having a mentor to strategize and how to make an impact, um, teamwork, having people that complement your traits, uh, networking within industries also outside of your country. So you can have an idea of how this kind of works. Um, not allowing, uh, corporate uh, work to foster your mindset, um, just because you're, you're a minority, you know, um, I think leadership traits 
uh, being helpful in sharing the, I call them the lug, golden nuggets of, of, of our stories among us women, um, having a true spirit ship of being a trailblazer, you know, that, that, that are just some of the things that I have used for me to stay within, within me, because, you know, I'm, I'm in a culture where, you know, I work and live in Mexico. And again, I'm the first that has experienced the merging into two different things, culture and mining in Mexico. So I have sacrificed um, a lot of my, I wouldn't say sacrifice, maybe dissimulated, moved away from my American Americanist and embraced uh, my mother culture. Um, and, and one of the things that I've done, I, I don't get into the whole political game. So this kind of saves me the hard work of, of, you know, not, not trying to fit in into an organization who don't, who doesn't value, um, like my, my, my principles, you know, um, if you are invisible, be visible. So I started doing a lot of other things that other people just didn't care to do, Jennifer, you know, so that that's kind of how I did, you know, by joining the associations, doing those things, you know, because there really isn't a formula, you know, but I can share my experience that helped me to connect, to um, understand, you know, where, where all of this kind of started, you know, so when I moved here, uh, you know, I got married, I, I started doing a family tree just to kind of understand like, where, where do I come from? Where does my, com my husband come from and, and come to find out, you know, my husband's family is uh direct link to, to Doroteo Arango known as Pancho Villa, you know, so that right there kind of gave me a base point for me to teach my, 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 my daughter, you know, this is where you come from. And, and again, raising the awareness of understanding your culture and also having a vision outside of Mexico, you know, uh, trying for me to um, have her, having her understand a little bit more of, of where, where she comes from and what, what the world has to offer. So I very much believe in, in leading by example, you know, so I'm, I am that example for my child and that's kind of how I've. I've managed to stay, you know, with, with the direct vision as to where I'm going. Nancy, for the gringos in the audience who may not have steeped <laughs> themselves in revolutionary history, <laughs> uh, tell us what the significance of being a direct descendant of Pancho Villa. Oh, my God. Um, well, the funny thing, uh, Adrian, my daughter was in kindergarten and the teacher taught her to say that her name was Sofia Arango de Durango Pancho Villa. Oh, wow. So that right there, uh, can you imagine, you know, uh, crossing uh, TJ, right? And and being asked that question by by the, the officer. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, you know, Pancho Villa was the first to invade the United States. You know, he was he was the first one to do this. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have my child being taken away from me. All these different thoughts are going through my head. Just having that direct descent. Um, I, I want to make sure my, my daughter understands that Pancho Villa did what he had to do as a revolutionary. We all have a conscious decision whether we want to either, you know, step up to, to do the difference, to make the difference or stay back. And, um, for me, 
by leading example is by me being here on your radio with this amazing women and discussing what it means to be a woman in, in, in a industry that's male dominated. You know, I make that choice and I have to lead that by making sure my daughter understands that, you know, if she's in a situation, it's her obligation, not just by her last name, but by her belief as to what it is that I have, you know, taught her as, as, as a mother, um, for her to, you know, face life. Life is tough. (laughs) And life is tough. I think when you are, I don't know if it's necessarily tougher because by this point in time, after having worked in 15 countries and traveled to over 50, I'm compulsive about exploring other cultures and understanding how people work. But life is tougher. We, we, We do make it less easy on ourselves when we choose to work and live outside of our native cultures. And Mel, obviously, you have a great deal of perspective on this. Everyone in this show has uh, plenty of perspective on this particular idea. And I'm curious, trying to think about exactly how to put it. I have faced my own challenges when it comes to being in different types of cultures or different cultures, wherever I was in the world. It is not the easiest thing to adjust to the current, to the local landscape, to the work style, to um, living style, depending on what type of culture that you're actually in. And I could share many stories about this. And actually I have, I have written two books on the subject, (laughs) one about Europe and one about the experiences in Asia. I haven't gotten to Australia yet because those were so intense. I'm not really ready to relive the experience, but both Mel and Nancy and whoever would like to go first, I'm curious about your thoughts on remaining true to who you are to be ex- successful. I mean, Mel, I know you had some some ex- extensive, I don't want to say dangerous situations with cultures in the Congo, but I can imagine it was precarious. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was I was thinking as you were articulating the question, I was thinking to myself, have I ever conformed to anybody's cultural norms? I mean, starting in America and working my way through the rest of my life. And yeah, the answer is a resounding no, I haven't. But then I've been very, very lucky, unlike Adrian, to never have um, served in the Middle East, where obviously, you know, particularly in countries that practice actively Sharia law, you know, Conformity is enforced upon you. You will be, you know, wearing the appropriate garb and you will be accompanied by a male in the circumstances in which it is dictated that you shall be, etc. So I was very fortunate, given my personality and big mouth, that I never actually served in any of those countries. Everywhere I went, there was always that cultural choice. But I will say sometimes I'll tell the story because it's it's funny. Um, rather than, than telling the story about danger, I'll tell the story about humor. Uh, I had not long been in the Congo, but I had already observed. And 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 let me add as a preface to this: some of what I observed in 2003 was an exaggeration of existing cultural norms because that country had just emerged from what is known as Africa's World War. 
with nine countries fighting it out on their native soil. So, you know, I want, that's an important thing to understand in the context of what I'm about to say. Because when I arrived in Congo in 2003, it was inescapable to me that I was dealing with no women whatsoever in positions of authority, not in the government, um, not in the private sector. And, you know, most of the women that were visible were the ones that were in the market trying to sell, you know, bread and whatever vegetables they could to try to keep the family alive in this war economy. But you didn't see like the well-dressed, educated, elite women. And, but I, I knew they had to be there. And so I, I had made friends fairly quickly with a couple of high-level Congolese gentlemen, one of whom was the equivalent of the Speaker of the House. And he was over at my house for dinner. And I said to him, what about this dichotomy, Olivier? I, I only see working-class women, and actually not very many of them for obvious reasons. There's no one in government. There's, there's no one in the private sector. What's going on with this? And I said, it's not, is this the way you treat your women? I said, if it is the way you treat your women, how do you deal with the fact that I am in a position of great power and influence in your country, representing my country? How do you deal with that? I'm, I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Madame, you need to understand this. You are a genderless object. And I couldn't resist the temptation. I sort of propped my blouse open and looked down. And I said, as far as I can see, um, I'm still a woman. <laughs> but I took his point. I was so out of context culturally that there wasn't even an, an attempt to address the fact that I was a female I was accepted as the individual occupying that very powerful and visible position, irrespective of gender. And effectively, I was treated as a man. You were so out of context. So that was, that was fascinating. Yeah. I, I heard a similar comment. Uh, thank you for sharing that in genderless. Yes, I'm not sure how I would react to that, but I, I guess I would take a similar approach to you. Uh, a comment from a friend of mine who lived in, he was from Ohio as well, and uh, has been living in Japan for 20 years and who has uh, speaks fluent Japanese, has been very successful, but he, he knows uh, that he'll never be accepted as a local He'll always be a foreigner. He'll always be an outsider. There's a certain limit to where he can go. And that's, that's even a guy, right? So if, a, and, and we know what the perception is of women in Asia too, in many of the Asian countries, Japan in particular. So, but he made the remark to me when I was visiting with an Australian friend to, to Tokyo for the first time, he said, you guys are kryptonite. They don't even know what you are. Western women, Western business women, they don't know what to do with you. So they will just stay out of your way. <laughs> I also had some interesting times in the Netherlands when I had, the Netherlands is a fairly rigid culture. And I, one friend of mine who was, there were a lot of his foreigners working for Honeywell in Holland and um, 
one of my Swedish friends was yelled at in Holland at 6 a.m. when she was out jogging. She was yelled at by the neighbor, be normal, (laughs) because it wasn't normal for them to be out jogging. Uh, there's a lot of examples I could cite about Holland, but I'm Nancy, I'd like to turn this over to you as you have been living in Mexico for such a long time. Now you've had a lot of, you've seen the change or lack of change uh, within the Mexico mining industry. I don't know if you've heard about it, but there is, there is a concept out there that is relatively recent of loose and tight cultures Loose cultures, uh, the U.S. and Mexico are both defined as loose, meaning that uh, our rules for social social norms are informal and therefore able to change. Uh, tight cultures would be the Japanese, uh, Singapore, some of the other, uh, some the Middle Eastern countries that we talked about. So, Nancy, what do you think? Uh, what change have you seen? Have you? Would you like to see more? How do you expect the situation to evolve? Get out your crystal ball, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things, Jen, that I tend to do is not to sexualize the discussion. I learned that the physical or vocal language that is used here needs to change, you know, and and I just don't get involved in it because I don't want to be part of the problem. You know, my integrity, again, this goes back to the integrity that you have. What's more important than to fit in? You know, I, I think. That's one of the things about the changes when you emerge into cultures. You know, you got to understand that it's going to take a long time for things to change. And, um, you know, I, I still feel very much, you know, a fish out of, a fish out of the water, you know, being here because it, it is a challenge. Um, it's not an easy next, you know, it's going to take place in this, again, accepting the culture, but also understanding, you know, where the the change is, is going, you know, where the movement of the people is going. And, and Mexico um, is having to deal with a lot of current issues that um, are not uh, focused on, 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 on women and, and the changes that need to be made, you know, for, for this to be more of an equal kind of um, country for, for everyone. So, Again, I think it, it, it's tough. You know, I, I, I don't have much. Uh, my, my crystal ball is not saying much <laughs> at, this, at this point. My question for the three of you is when I hear talk about authenticity, of course, I nod my head because we all know that that's the right answer at some level. Certainly, we could agree that inauthenticity is a poor pathway to, to flourishing. But the question then becomes, how do you arrive at the sense of yourself that you're now true to? When everyone is raised in homes, school systems, societies, economic and political structures, that are shaping them to believe certain things are possible for them and certain things are not possible for them. The same structures, by the way, that shape the mansplainers who don't need to ask permission to simply weigh in on the topic because they've been socialized literally in the specific 
technical sense of that term, to, to never question whether or not it's okay. They don't have to ask permission. The same structures that create those kind of men also creates women who have internalized the doubt. Uh, the golf example, Mel, is a great, uh, it's, it's just one anecdote that reveals something profound and pervasive and problematic since we're rolling with the P words here. How do you get the self-awareness? And let's not, before we get to how do you like a prescription, I'd love to hear from you, Mel, you sort of described yourself as someone who was always out of sync with things. Uh, Nancy, you a little bit as well, a combination of your family and the environment you were in allowed you to sort of make your way and flourish in that regard. Jennifer, you, you didn't speak directly about this, but it's there a little bit. But if you look back, what had you get to the point where you had a sense of yourself that you could be true to that was this independent, autonomous, within constraints, of course, because we don't control all of the circumstances that we're in. How did you get there? (laughs) Constraints, my ass. Your question is absolutely not about constraints. It's about the opposite. It's about... How did we become the paradigm setters? How did we become the rule breakers and be comfortable and at ease with ourselves as those kinds of characters? So don't don't even try to slip away from that, Adrian. Point well taken. And I want to add that we're talking about this in a universal way. And if we were to add in other intersections of race and class, we would be at some point talking about situations in which people are trying to practice freedom within conditions that are structured against them. So that's what I was referring to there. But no, absolutely. Uh, Take it in the direction of the unleashed. I'm I'm all for it. But my real question is this. How do you develop the self-awareness that's required to do what you do? For me, Adrian, it was just feeling uncomfortable. Like whenever I feel uncomfortable about it, that's, that's when it starts going in my head like, no, this is not right. And, and it goes back to what I believe in. Again, my, my, my pillar upbringing because authenticity is the closest that I have to being able to relate and being able to understand the right from wrong, regardless of wherever culture I'm emerged in. Okay. Because in Mexico, certain things are allowed. Certain things are nothing happens. But wait a minute. I go back to my authenticity belief on me, my upbringing. And then that, that's when my, I, I'm able to make choice because of that. So again, it's, it's understanding. And, and again, the reason why I wanted to share about my upbringing, because I did not have a Mexican American while I was growing up that I said, I want to be that, or I, I disinterested me. So being that example is what really shook me to understanding me and what, how I wanted to build myself outside of the norm and be maybe that one person that a kid or a boy or a girl can look up to and say, wow, well, she did it. I could do it too and relate that story. Okay. So I, I, I didn't want a quinceanera. So that alone, you know, against the whole, my whole family was like, what? She's weird. <laughs> Something's wrong with her. So no, it, it it was very much, you know, having that gut feeling that that made me be who I am today. 
Nancy, what you said earlier about the power of stories and sharing these golden nuggets with others, there may be lots of young women out there who might have had that nagging feeling like this isn't right for me. I don't want to participate in this. Absolutely. And hearing you say that you refused the quinceanera and that you dealt with it might have them go, oh, I can do that. I didn't know. I could say no. So it's really, really great. All right. Self-awareness. How do you get there? I always say that great parents are God's biggest gift to you because the woman that I am is a reflection of the child that I was. And for me, the independence and the self-confidence and the, the, the ethical basis and the knowing what rules to break and why you're breaking them came straight from my folks. When I was growing up, Cincinnati was a segregated city. We had the Ku Klux Klan. We had an all-white police force that firmly believed that Negroes had a place and they needed to stay in their place and then not be heard or seen outside of their place. So that was the culture that I was born in. But it wasn't the culture I was raised in because in my house, my parents taught skin color is irrelevant. If you must be judgmental, judge someone on their actions. But try not to be judgmental. Try to be a humanist. Try to accept people. But know that you have to recognize there is right and there is wrong. And it's your duty in life to fight the wrong. So I would say that my character was formed by the time I was six, long before I hit school. And they didn't. The school systems, the work systems, they never had a chance to impinge on my personality. So for me, that would be my answer, that those who are in loving relationships, whether that's an official marriage or it's a partnership, whatever that is, and you have children and you're a single parent and you have children, anyone who has a child, please, God, do your very best to instill in them early and hard the fundamental value of each and every precious child so that they grow up with self-confidence, determination, and courage. How am I supposed to follow that, Mel? (laughs) (laughs) When I was introduced to Mel two years ago, I was told she is a force of nature and has proven to be an accurate description. Jennifer, you found your own path and... From the conversations we've had, I know not every step along the way was an empowering one. And who you are today is in large part the way you have responded to some of those challenges and overcome them. So you may not have a narrative of it started out great and stayed great, but you've come to your own sense of truth with yourself of who you are and what you stand for. Talk about that a little bit. My, my. Well, uh, I I can agree with um, both Nancy and Mel on certain parts of their story. And then I have my own complexity in the middle of that. And uh, that is for sure that my mother was a force and uh, you didn't mess with Ellen. (laughs) Ellen uh, was a groundbreaker and a social worker and a fighter for, for the rights of children and the rights of women. I mean, she... She shared stories with me from a very early age about the way children were treated and the situations that she had to get kids out of and instilled in me that it's my responsibility to help people who don't have the advantages that I have been given. 
so I'm, that was the foundation. And she also said to me, you can do anything you want, you know, which was including not showing up at school a lot because she knew I was smarter than most of the teachers. So <laughs> bonus. But uh, the the part about um, Nancy, what you described as always feeling like a fish out of water, always feeling like, you know, you didn't really do what other people thought you should be doing. I was that same person. And I, you know, I just couldn't wait to see the world. I couldn't wait to see what was going on and understand people. And I always say that uh, I'm one of those people that will definitely leap before I look, because if I had known how hard, how difficult a lot of that was going to be, I don't know that I would have done it in terms of working in different countries. Some of it was fantastic. What I've learned is truly uh, exceptional value and perspective that most people will never have the opportunity to, to see and feel and understand. So I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, moving from country to country and trying to consistently evaluate what is going on and where you stand with whom and what is the tolerance for women and business in that particular country or environment. It's um, it's a very confusing situation because it it was a long period of time and it all sort of uh, accumulated uh, leading up to Australia, which was the most difficult at all because of all, because it is so such a male dominated culture. And at the end of that, um, my life crashed and burned so that uh, it was everything happened at once. My mother passed away. I got, I decided to exit my marriage and I moved back to the country that I least wanted to on the planet. (laughs) And so how did I arrive at authenticity or at least basically 12 months of COVID, 16 months of COVID certainly helped me sort a lot of that out about what needs needed to be resurrected in the path that, that I wanted to take next. But what has never changed is that I will support other women no matter what I do. And especially in the context of working and, and, this, and men too. It's not like I exclude men and think that, you know, they don't need help because everybody needs this kind of help if you want to move to another country and be successful at it. I don't care who, what you think you know. <laughs> you don't know anything until you are sitting in a room full of people that are not from your country. So... The advice I would give is, as Nancy said, as Mel said, really, it's falling back on who you truly are and what you truly believe in and what you value. Because the minute you try to adjust to that other culture and be Dutch, be Australian, be anything other than what you are, is the moment that you sacrifice everything. As we wrap up this segment, let's return, Mel, to you and the concept that you introduced us to briefly in your opening remarks, and that is your upgrade of the initials ESG. So, you know, what used to be corporate social responsibility kind of evolved into environmental, social and governance ESG, but you've got a new version of that. Can you talk about that and connect it to what Jennifer was just saying about women and careers and mentoring and what's happening and what needs to happen? Gee, there's a small and easy question. I'll be glad to handle that. (laughs) I think that actually in in tying those two things together and tying together the individual and the structural, for me, it, it starts with that first word. It starts with ethical because 
when we're talking about authenticity and we're talking about values and we're talking about being true to ourselves, the other word for that is behaving in an ethical manner. When we talk about being inclusive and respecting that, as Jennifer just said, men need you know just as much cultural guidance at times as women do, and that sometimes women need more and sometimes men need more. And recognizing that, that's humanistic, and the basis of that is ethics. So in a corporate sense, we, we have seen that the demands and the expectations of societies around the world towards business and the role of business in society in all of its myriad definitions, politics as well as business, particularly politics, the domain in which businesses fear to tread, has changed. What happened in Atlanta, Georgia is a classic example. The politicians of the state decided to pass a law which is widely regarded as limiting access to the right, and I stress that, the right to vote. It's just wonderful to me how so many legislators currently in our country think that they have a godlike power to decide who will receive what right. Will women have the right to govern their bodies and their sexual choice? Will people have the right to go to the polls and vote? Trying to arbitrate that is unethical. And allowing it to happen is unethical. And as we saw very publicly, two major corporations, Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines, got caught in the backlash. As the people of Georgia said, you, you, your company, you're everything in this state. Look at all the money that you make. Look at all the employees that you have. Why don't you care about this? Your employees won't be allowed to vote, Coca-Cola, Delta. It's not just some unknown faces in the Delta out there in the swamp that aren't going to vote. It's your people. You need to care about this. So societies are crying out for increased ethical engagement by businesses in doing business and in businesses in relating to the world, including politics. And the answer does not lie in something so simplistic as temporarily stopping your political donations to the PAC funds and to various candidates. It comes from changing the way that you understand your relationship with the place where you are, your city, your county, your state, and your country as a business. And how you treat your people and how you put your people at the center of your endeavors. They're not machines. They're not expendable. They are vital and central. And if you protect them, they will protect you. This was the old time pact, right? This was when people used to work for companies for 30 years. Why did they do that? Because there were no other jobs to choose from? No. 
because they felt valued by the company and they therefore engaged with that company. So it's kind of a complicated and rambling explanation, but without ethics as the basis, there is no such thing as sustainability or sustainable growth. Now, let's tie this down to some really practical nuts and bolts. What you said was very, very clear, very passionate and very compelling. When you and I were speaking privately the other day, you talked about some specific examples of this in your own work. For example, how your consultancy is not only taking on clients in an advisory role, but you're seeking seats on boards because of the fact that women like you can be in a position of influence. What are some of the specifics that you could make here on the program in terms of recommendations for women who are either seeking to elevate or leverage their leadership, their insight, their position? How should they go about doing it? You're probably asking the wrong person because I'm not on as many boards as I'd like to be. (laughs) But I think the answer to that is what both Nancy and Jennifer have consistently said. And that is to continue to make your positions known, to speak out, and to allow companies and organizations to experience your authenticity, whether that means you write an email to the CEO. This is a a concrete example that actually happened. A a company that, that I work with got a letter from a member of the community where they're working. And the letter essentially said that the individual was disturbed by what he believed to be the attitude of that company towards the the neighborhood, that it was not um, inclusive, that it was disdainful, that it was racist. There were lots of negative words in that letter, a lot of negative words. And the CEO was shocked because... His reaction was, we are none of those things. We don't believe in in racism. We don't engage in racism. But when we sat down to talk about it, it emerged that certain hiring practices give an impression of racism. And so he made a decision that those hiring practices would be updated and changed. And he wrote a letter back to the member of the community to outline what was being done. So irrespective of, you know, women per se, it's a good example of how one individual can affect change. So yes, we as women, and Nancy in talking earlier about joining organizations made a huge point. You know, women need to join these organizations and we need to work our way into the leadership. And we need, once we're in that leadership, we need to have conversations about what is really working and what is really not working. Because I will tell you something, having sensitivity training in big companies can often backfire and just widen the gap. I mean, I literally had the experience of being in an elevator with a guy who I had worked with for years and who I knew well, and... I said something to him like, that's a really nice tie that you have on today. And he said, thank you. I was going to compliment you on your outfit, but having just had sensitivity training yesterday, I was worried that it would be construed as sexist. My God, people, can't we just be human to each other? 
So yes, women need to get into organizations. We need to penetrate the leadership from those organizations like the like SME that Nancy mentioned, like the National Mining uh, Association, Manufacturers Association. We need to get into those and we need to get into the leadership and we need to express our values loudly and consistently and coherently. And by the way, we need to get into finance. We have absolutely got to get into finance. If there is not money for women to grow their ideas, their ideas will not grow. Thank you, Mel. Uh, I, I, I just wanted to make a quick remark on what you talked about with uh, sensitivity training in large corporations potentially backfiring because um, while I was, you know, one of the companies that I worked with is a massive consulting firm that operates globally. And my last corporate position in Australia, uh, I had some, some issues because it was such a male dominated group. The tech industry in Australia is uh, heavily male dominated. I experienced physical threats, uh, sexual harassment, discrimination, bullying, whatever, you name it. So because I confided in one person, they decided in 2012 to have their first ever anti-bullying training class in this corporation in Australia, this particular office. And I had the experience of getting to role play with the person who was harassing me. Oh, God. (laughs) Not exactly a strategy for success and change. Right. Toxic cultures find a way to toxify, don't they? (laughs) Nancy, as Mel rightly pointed out, you gave some very specific recommendations earlier on. I want to give you a chance to circle back and add anything else you would have at this point as we close the conversation. If you are speaking to a peer, someone at your level, or if you're speaking to a rising leader, someone you see, you look down and see coming up. What are some of the specific recommendations you would make to her in order to practice the kind of authentic leadership that you have been describing? Well, for one thing, Adrian, I've always tell younger kids um, is that leadership is not a choice. It's a lifestyle. You know, so for me, being a leader is sharing my story. And that right there sets you know, the grounds for anyone to believe, wait, that kind of makes sense. That makes me go outside and do what I want to do. One of the things that I started doing is, you know, advocating for student chapters so that more kids, men and women come into our industry. You know, mining is going to be going through a shortage uh, because we don't have enough engineers, metallurgists, geologists in our industry. So I started thinking, what what can we do? It's not enough just talking about how awesome our industry is. So I started a clothing line called North Mining Apparel, you know, with cool different, you know, images on T-shirts just to kind of get kids' attention. So it's always thinking outside of what it is that you may think and just exploring that option. That's what I tell younger kids, you know, you got to explore outside of what it is that you're being told you're supposed to do so that you can discover who you truly want to be. And also, you know, to make that difference, Adrian, because a lot of the times I think it's with, you know, media and everything that we have now, you know, at the palm of our hands, we lose track of how how do I make a difference? It's all about who do I want? I want to be like this person or that person. So 
again, explore, explore, you know, and uh, don't be afraid, you know, just to go out there. I mean, I would have never thought in a million years I would be living in Mexico out of all places in Durango, you know, being married to who I'm married to and, um, and telling my story, you know? Yeah. I love that. The evolution of communication from the telegram and telex, which powered these companies 50 years ago to TikTok, which powers the youth today. There's a place within that to find your voice, to communicate, to create uh, and to lead. Well, as we wrap this all up, Jennifer, I know that the series is leading up to an event in Hermosillo, Sonora, Mexico in October, the Discoveries Conference. You're going to be there. A lot of the mega women in the mega region are going to be there. What do we need to know about that conference? Uh, how can people participate if it's relevant and appropriate for them? Uh, give us the scoop on all that. I appreciate the chance to mention uh, the Discoveries Mining Conference uh, in Hermosillo at Via Toscana. Uh, will be October 5, 6, and 7. Uh, it's run by a, an organization called Mexico Mining Center. And I'm being given the opportunity to take the stage uh, on October 5th to talk about intercultural communication in the global mining industry. And during this conversation, I'm not going to be focused on the male-female dynamics because let's face it, it's going to be an audience of mostly men. I think there's one other female speaker out of 40 CEOs. And, but what it is going, what I am going to talk about is the importance of, it, it is something Nancy just really described very well. You know, intercultural communication, the key of it, the foundation for it is to withhold your reflexive beliefs that you were educated in. You know, my, um, my U.S.ness, my, uh, just your reflexes about, oh, I need to react this way because somebody said something that I didn't like so that I can take in what somebody's actually telling me. And this talent is something that transcends any country. It's not that I have to be a language expert uh, across Spanish, English, Swahili. It's, it's behavior. And once you understand yourself and your own behavior, your ability to communicate and form relationships business-wise across the globe is so much stronger. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Fabulous. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us for this conversation. Mel Sanderson is president of Mel Sanderson Consulting based here in Phoenix, but with tentacles reaching around the world. Nancy Morales Arango is business development manager for Mexico for Bureau Veritas. And Jennifer Burge, my co-host for this three-part miniseries, is CEO of Worldwise Coaching and Training based in Phoenix, Arizona and Hermosillo, Sonora. Thank you all for your contributions and for your leadership. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. Thanks, Adrian.